Hello, Justice Seekers. M. Chris Fabricant is the Innocence Project's Director of Strategic Litigation, one of the foremost experts on forensic sciences and the U.S. criminal justice system. He's also the author of the new book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. Chris, thank you so much for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure, Chris. So what was your goal with this book? I was really trying to create, you know, a new genre of untrue crime or not true crime genre and to dispel some of the myths around the use of forensic sciences in the United States and also to have a um, an understanding for the general public of really what it's like to litigate in cases and in courtrooms around the country that few folks have ever been to and like deep in the deep south and places like Mississippi and in Texas and in you know the middle of the country it also places like New York City where the use of forensic sciences is misunderstood and misused every day but not in the ways that it's depicted in shows like CSI or forensic files or any of these others is the actual reality of innocent people being put in prison based on subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence, you know, and so much of like, you know, you know, the American public, including lawyers have, you know, are scientifically illiterate and the consequences have been really, really dramatic, you know, I mean, and nearly half of all wrongful convictions are attributable, at least in part to the use of unreliable forensic evidence, you know, I mean, which is astonishing you think about it because science is what we rely on. This is what mankind uses to advance our knowledge of the world around us. And for science or purported science to have contributed to so many miscarriages of justice, centuries of wrongful imprisonment is really just an astonishing scandal that few really understood, you know, and understand in the way that, you know, Innocence Project lawyers do and people who do this type of work. So I wanted to write a book that, you know, was a good read, you know, that tells a lot of stories, you know, what I mean, and that will hold interest of people that have no interest in science, but have an interest in the criminal justice system. So that was really my goal. Bunch of heartbreaking stories too with that. Now, some of these supposed sciences that uh, you can poke a bunch of holes in when you really actually look at the true science of things, you have labeled in this book, the title of the book, and that is junk science. What is the birth of junk science as a sort of jury swaying uh, piece of evidence in the US criminal justice system? Well, people have been using, you know, claims that they're, you know, science backed, you know, in various forms of fraud in and malfeasance for as long as there have been science. But in the criminal justice system, really, the it became, you know, the forensic sciences and the forensic scientist that we know today it was really in the post World War Two era. And with the establishment of the FBI crime lab, and then that led to also a lot of local crime labs becoming going online and starting to do more traditional forensic techniques like handwriting and shoe prints and fingerprint analysis, and sometimes what's called ballistics or firearms and tool mark evidence and that kind of forensic techniques. And before that, there wasn't really an established field of forensic sciences in that there weren't board certifying entities to certify people like a forensic pathologist, for example, was not a, um, a profession that had a board certifying entity until after World War II. And what it became as, you know, this mix of both popular culture being, you know, moving from radio to television 
and the criminal justice system becoming part of popular culture in this way that it became entertainment. And so the Sam Separate Trial, which I talk a little bit about in my book, was the first really, you know, lurid media sensation and it involved a lot of forensic sciences because like all circumstantial evidence cases, you know, you need, you know, you know, led scientific evidence to, you know, to place the suspect at a crime scene. And as a result of that trial and others that, that were less prominent is that forensic pathologists became stars and forensic science became a field that you could aspire to, to be, and the, the problem really was, is that it wasn't associated with mainstream science. It was this kind of other science that, that was forensics. And so it wasn't, the techniques were not being researched in laboratories, but they were being developed in, science, in crime scenes often by police investigators to solve a particular crime and without doing the scientific validation research that needed to happen before this evidence or you know, so-called evidence was being used in criminal courts. And so during this era, you know, during the buildup of both the sides of the legal system and the criminal and the civil side you know, resulted in explosion of our legal system around the country became a, a huge institution, both on the civil side as a result of uh, a lot of personal injury litigation that became much more prominent in the 70s and product liability and mass torts. And that type of litigation became, you know, exploded during that same era. And on the criminal side, mass incarceration and the drug war, you know, led to an explosion of the size on the, the criminal justice system. And as a result, cottage industries kind of sprung up to support this system. And one of those was expert witnesses. As we use more and more science, expert witness became a profession that you could do, that you could, you know, you didn't have to have any other fields. You could just work as an expert witness. And so many forensic techniques were and forensic experts became incentivized to work toward becoming an expert in a field and become an expert witness. And you know, the probably the most, you know, the example that I focus on a lot in the book is by mark evidence. And you could see the evolution, which was, you know, I, you know, have spent a lot of time litigating these cases, but I, I hadn't actually saw how it came online for the first part. And so what happened was is that the forensic pathologists were working next to shoulder to shoulder with forensic dentists. And so if you're familiar with, you know, where somebody, you know, a body has been burned beyond recognition, right? And that, you know, that they were only able to identify this person through their dental records. And most people don't realize that that's a forensic dentist, your local neighborhood forensic dentist that did that work or a forensic odontologist as they say in court, which is the same thing. And, but they weren't actually becoming stars. They weren't testifying in court. They weren't identifying suspects. They weren't really forensic scientists. They were working kind of adjacent to the field. And so they started pointing to bite mark evidence as something that could be theirs, right? So dentists, we know teeth, you know what I mean? And so we should know bite marks, we identify bodies. And so they just kind of invented this new field and the founding fathers of what became known as the American Board of Forensic Odontology invented their credentials. They started certifying each other and they became board certified forensic odontologists and they were looking for a bite mark case. And when they finally found one, the perfect case in a lot of different ways, and I kind of explain why in the book, but really it was a gruesome murder of a, a landlady and, and that we 
had good reason to believe that the suspect had done this, but there was really little evidence to point to him, little hard evidence beyond suspicion. And so these founding fathers, you know, found a bite mark on the victim's nose, which is in cartilage, which doesn't have the same problems of retaining any information that skin does. And one of them had a law degree and so understood the value of legal precedent. And so it was important to get it right the first time. And then that was Walter Marks, uh, the first prosecution in Southern California that led to the first use of this evidence. And it sounded like it was already part of forensics, right? Because they had credentials already. They had been working in the mortuary right next to forensic pathologists. They had, you know, they were members of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, all this other stuff. So the idea that they were promoting drunk science was farthest thing from anybody's mind. And it had the superficial appeal that you would, you know, be able to eyeball evidence and say that there was a match. And as a result of that first case, the legal precedent has spread like a virus around the country and led to centuries of wrongful conviction just based on bite mark evidence. And then, you know, when one of the stories that I tell in the book is the Ted Bundy case. Mm-hmm. And that was like kind of the next, you know, crime of the century, you know, and trial. And it was the first nationally televised trial in our nation's history. And from researching it, I was really surprised to learn this. And I didn't know it when I went into to write about, you know, how, you know, this, this evidence became so mainstream, is that they had really almost no actual evidence against Ted Bundy for the first murders he was convicted of, you know, the, the coyotes and, and the Kai Omega killings in, in Florida State University, is that there was a really shaky eyewitness ID from Nita Neary who would have identified somebody else under hypnosis. And really, that was it. You know, he was in the area, you know, I'm not doubting his guilt, you know, what I mean, but what they needed was something like a bite mark. And so they found one on one of the victims. And then these founding fathers, the same people who had snuck bite marks into court the first time, became national celebrities because they were testified in court in front of millions of people and matched Ted Bundy to that injury. And then Ted Bundy was conducting cross-examinations himself, so it became something of a circus. And after that, they were just off to the races. And all of that, that a single piece of research that demonstrated the claimed abilities of these dentists to do anything that they claimed to be able to do. Yeah, it was very eye-opening to read about in this book regarding Ted Dundee, uh, Ted Bundy. Now, junk science relies on case studies published in peer-reviewed journals. While that sounds impressive on its face, why is it not that impressive ultimately, Chris? Peer review is something that is widely misunderstood in um, in science generally, and certainly in forensic sciences, in that the journals are often, you know, what peer reviewed. And so what that typically means is that it's a blind submission from a scientist that's publishing the results of a a piece of scientific research that is evaluated by other scientists in the field, critically evaluated, looking for flaws and, um, and methodological flaws and you know, conclusions that aren't supported by the data and those types of um, potential issues with a piece of literature and often giving feedback and then resubmitting or sometimes rejecting. And when it's published in a peer-reviewed or a referee journal or something like that, there's some assurance that it's been through a rigorous process and that the data say what 
the literature is claiming that it does, right? And so that's, you know, very reductive, but that's basically what peer review is. And a peer, a, a publication in a peer reviewed journal like that is what folks are typically thinking about when they say, well, this has been peer reviewed in the, in the literature, so it's good to go. And what happens a lot with forensics and something that I think that you're asking about from the book is this notion of case studies. And what case studies are is that how a particular forensic technique was used to solve a particular crime. And by solve, you know, and, and your listeners can't see the air quotes that I just used, but, you know, as the Innocence Project works, has demonstrated for a long time is that, you know, a jury verdict doesn't mean that the crime was solved. You know, I mean, it, it means that there was a jury verdict. So this was true with like the first case of bite mark evidence that dentist wrote a peer review, you know, publication that was published in a peer reviewed journal, the Journal of Forensic Sciences. But it was just an explanation as to how, you know, they'd gone about solving this crime and what techniques they had used. It wasn't actual research. It was a story. And what happens with case studies, which are lesion in uh, forensic sciences, is that you have these titles that really like say or claim that, hey, I validated bite mark evidence. There's a, there's a peer-reviewed publication that claims to have proven the uniqueness of the human dentition and that uses the phrase to a reasonable doubt. And it was done by some Vegas dentist who's responsible for Ray Crone's wrongful conviction who sent him to death row in Arizona. That piece of literature was published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it wasn't peer-reviewed because it wasn't blind and the methodological flaws weren't actually identified. And so you'll just get these, this like lists of literature that suggests that there's been a lot of research done to support the claims, but few lawyers ever actually read the literature. And when you do, and, and as part of my job, I have to, you're astonished at how little they say, or the claims, the leaps of logic that are made from tiny little insignificant studies to claim, you know, something as, you know, as groundbreaking as proving the uniqueness of the human dentition. So it's deeply flawed. And this is not true. I mean, this is true with lots of sciences, but forensic sciences are the worst offender in my view. Who was Cameron Todd Willingham and how was his prosecution tainted by junk science? And I have to admit, this is uh, one of the stories in this book that got to me the most as the father of two young children. Yeah, Cameron Todd Willingham is um, many of your Austin listeners will be potentially familiar with the case of um, the wrongful execution of Cameron Todd Willingham for the arson murder of his three young daughters. And there was the only evidence that was used to um, prove, and uh, I'll use air quotes or uh, again, the, his guilt in that case was folklore, pure folklore that had been passed down from generation of fire inspectors that, um, that they believed demonstrated that this was a deliberate fire. So they had many different um, arson indicators is what they would call them, you know? And so there were things like alligatoring on the floor, which are poor patterns, right? And so that was lead to show that a liquid accelerant like gasoline or lighter fluid had been used because of the patterns on the floor suggested that. There was um, evidence that tended to show that there were multiple points of origin of the fire, right? Which makes it, you know, almost impossible to have been set accidentally, right? It looks like it's set deliberately if it's being set in multiple places. 
there was um, shattered glass or crazed glass, which was thought to be as product of the use of an accelerant too, because um, it was believed that fires burned hotter if they were if they were fueled by accelerants. And there were all these like indicators that um, turned what was a terrible tragedy into uh, a compounded a terrible tragedy. A, a three um, young girls were killed in an accidental fire, and then their father was executed wrongfully for deliberately murdering them. And what's you know I you know point out in the book and discuss is that there was a parallel case in Texas that at the same time that you know based on the same arson indicators they were in fact jailed together they were on death row together the uh, Cameron Todd Willingham and and Willis is the other the um, and that the only real difference between those two cases is the level of representation that. Um, one of the one of the the code or not a code defendant, but the parallel case it had, and was finally exonerated right at around the time that Cameron Todd William was put to death. And it was really what was astonishing when I was looking at it was that there was you know the science had been debunked before. Cameron Todd Willingham was actually executed. There was a fax from Gerald Hurst, Dr. Gerald Hurst, who was a very, very prominent Oxford educated scientist that knew that this was junk science that had been introduced at trial and faxed that to Governor Perry, Governor Rick Perry was uh, at the time who did nothing and the execution went forward, you know, I mean, and then I outlined, you know, what happened with the Texas Forensic Science Commission hearings after the execution, when there was an effort to really uncover what a lot of people believed even back then was an innocent man being put to death. And Governor Perry shut down what Barry Sheck called like a Saturday night massacre, you know, I mean, was that he shut down the commission and fired its head before they could actually come to the conclusions that might have damaged his reelection chances. So, you know, and it wasn't until after the election was over that they finally, the Texas Forensic Science Commission issued its report and found, you know, exactly what I'm telling you right now is that there was no basis to conclude the science that was offered. There was no basis to conclude that this was a deliberately set fire. And, you know, what's astonishing about that case and arson, you know, investigation in general is that after they finally did scientific experiments and discovered that all of these indicators that they believed demonstrated deliberate fires were in fact the product of what's known as full room involvement. And that's where flashover it's called, you know what I mean? Is that when in a, like it's been described as the difference between a fire in a room and a room on fire is that you would get things like alligator on the floor and crazed glass and multiple, like indicators that seemed to show that there were multiple points of origin. And it wasn't, it was actually debris falling from the ceiling, right? Creating what looked to be um, multiple points of origin. So all of these indicators that were used in Cameron Todd Willingham's cases and many others were falsified through scientific experiments. That's what scientific experiments are supposed to do. You have a hypothesis and you see if you can falsify it, but it wasn't done till after an innocent person had been executed and probably not the only one. And you know, after when the, finally the science was debunked, the number of reported arson 
um, incidents in the United States dropped something like 40%. And that wasn't because we have fewer arsonists, right? It's because they weren't using junk science anymore. Mm. How is the 1993 Supreme Court ruling involving Morel Dow Pharmaceuticals an important moment in the slow awakening to the true value of junk science, Chris? You know, well, we talked earlier about um, the civil legal system and the criminal legal system and how both um, sides of our legal system really grew exponentially during you know, the 70s and the 80s as a result of um, personal injury litigation on the civil side and mass incarceration on the criminal side. On the civil side, a lot of those class action lawsuits and some of the other litigation, product liability and mass torts litigation that had uh, been successful by uh, plaintiff's attorneys, a lot of it was based on subjective speculation that there wasn't real science behind that. You know, a lot of it was good stuff too. You know, I mean, Ford Pintos were taken off the market and some dangerous products were removed. So I, I'm not suggesting that this was all junk. But there were, you know, plenty of very questionable verdicts that were based on very questionable science. And so corporate America, you know, uh, had had enough, you know, I mean, and they were seeking a new rule that would be a more rigorous test of purportedly scientific evidence before it'd be introduced in at trial. So they teed up a um, a case called Daubert, and I, I know people who know the Dauberts, even though it looks like it should be Daubert, it's actually Daubert, that's the way they pronounce it. But the, uh, so this was a, uh, a lawsuit that was related to the use of a drug called Benetine that was a prenatal um, a medication to, to prevent uh, morning sickness, and it was believed to cause birth defects. So that case went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court overturned really a century of, well, I don't know if you want to call it precedent, this tradition of um, what was called a fry test. And they created a new test that turned the, the, put the onus on excluding unreliable evidence on the judges. It used to be that the judges would defer to the scientific community and ask the question, is this technique generally accepted in the relevant scientific community? And, and so they would essentially count noses. They wouldn't do, have any independent judgment on the scientific bona fides of a particular technique. The problem with that was the way that they defined the relevant scientific community, and particularly in forensics, was often the experts themselves, the people who made their living, you know, testifying as expert witnesses in this field, right? So if you ask somebody who's living, you know, depends on the continued acceptance of this technique, the answer, if it's generally accepted or not, is going to be very obvious, right? Of course it is. If you'd ask mainstream scientists about so many of the techniques that I write about in my book, even back then, they would have said, no, there's no scientific literature supporting this, right? But that was the rule. That was the Fry rule. It was one that allowed a lot of these um, techniques in the court to begin with. So the Supreme Court case, Daubert, there was an effort to change this rule and put the onus on the judges to say, no, you have to do some independent research. You have to examine the claims. And it, they won. And the Supreme Court handed down this ruling that laid out five factors that are, you know, reflect basic scientific principles that a judge is supposed to consider before they allow so-called scientific evidence into trials. And what was astonishing was that it worked on the civil side. 
and the judges began excluding unreliable evidence at rates they had never before done, right? And they took that responsibility seriously. On the criminal side, nothing changed. Literally nothing changed. There is an empirical study done by Peter Neufeld, the co-founder of the Innocence Project about 10 years after Daubert that showed that empirically, that prosecutors are always successful in getting in whatever kind of evidence they want. The defense had never successfully, virtually never successfully excluded a prosecution proffer, even with, on techniques that we know had led to wrongful convictions were still being allowed into evidence. So this theme that I've explored around that in, in my book is what I called it poor people science, right? And that's what you get in the criminal legal system is poor people science because it's plain and the empirical evidence demonstrates it that we don't care about the rigor that behind so many of the forensic techniques that are used in our justice system. I did a follow-up study with Brandon Garrett in 2018 that showed that there had been really nothing had changed. And you know, it's for this reason that the Innocence Project really advocates for something like an FDA type agency to do the validation research outside of the criminal justice system. Because within that adversarial process and given the biases against criminal defendants, that separating sense from nonsense is really almost impossible to do. And the, you know, we we do with consumer products like toothpaste or aspirin or toilet paper or whatever, that before they're you know, used on the public or that for public consumption, that they're tested to make sure that they're safe. We have nothing like that for forensic sciences. And though you can be sent to death row on some you know, lead scientific evidence that's never been subject to even the most rudimentary scrutiny. The only thing standing between you know, that type of wrongful conviction is, and you know, a junk science is a judge. And the judge is not gonna rely on scientific literature. The judge is gonna rely on legal precedent, right? And legal precedent doesn't change, not very much. And science is always changing, it's always moving forward. So that inherent tension makes it almost impossible to continue um, to use scientific evidence if we can't acknowledge that science changes and that what we know today, we may not be as sure about tomorrow. Was part of the problem here also in the wake of this ruling that a lot of folks who are complicit in this system know exactly how their bread is buttered and they didn't want to rock the boat too much in that regard? Yeah, you know, one of the, the status quo is a very, very challenging thing to challenge, right? And the, um, the, I, what I think as far as the individuals involved in forensics, you know, the individual experts, you know, in some of these agencies is that they by and large are well-intentioned, smart, capable, and not seeking to frame innocent people, right? The, um, for crimes they didn't commit, you know I mean? I, I don't believe in, and, and, you know, with notable exceptions, some of whom I write about in my book, you know what I mean? But for the most part, are not seeking to do any harm. You know, they're seeking to bust bad guys. And that mindset, though, is a real problem for science. You know, I mean, if you talk about, you know, the National Academy of Sciences 2009 report, which is the most prestigious scientific entity in certainly in this country, maybe the world, one of the fundamental recommendations that they made was separating crime labs from law enforcement. And it's really, really important because of how much the mindset that I just talked about and how subjective so these techniques are. And if you have subjectivity, it's going to be prone to bias. 
And this is not deliberate. It's not racism. You know, I mean, it's implicit bias or sometimes or known as, you know, cognitive bias. And this is, you know, the influence of irrelevant information on final conclusions and forensic analysis that have nothing to do with the actual technique at issue, right? There's things like somebody confessed or that there was an eyewitness or something like that. So that shouldn't matter to a fingerprint examiner, but it does. And I write about one of the, the really um, amazing uh, experiments that was done in fingerprint analysis as relates to this and where they took five latent fingerprint examiners who had had um, at least 20 years of experience or board certified and I think one of them was from the FBI and there was um, an experiment done to see whether or not contextual information would influence their conclusions and so Dr. E.T.L. Dror is a, a neuroscientist in the UK conducted an experiment where he sent these experts um, casework, so a latent print from a crime scene and exemplars of potential suspects. And what he didn't tell them was that it was their, from their own prior casework. Hmm. They had already done, you know, and come to conclusions on this. And the only thing that he changed was the contextual information that was irrelevant to it, right? So something like there was a witness or there was a confession or whatever right that that had nothing to do with the evidence and three-fifths of them changed their original conclusion based only on irrelevant contextual information nothing had changed about the fingerprints it was just the information so the idea that we you know can continue to have you know forensic sciences just as an arm of law enforcement and and pretend like this is going to be unbiased objective science is just wrong so I'm glad you mentioned what the National Academy of Sciences did. You just talked about bias. It was in 2006 that the NAS put the most commonly used forensics in the criminal justice system under the figurative and literal microscope, Chris. This included bite marks, microscopic hair composition, arson science, and then, of course, bias as well. What do they find about microscopic hair comparison? You know, this is this is uh, um, I'll paraphrase here that that it's junk, right? The, um, is they, what they found is that you know really two things, you know, and if you think about it, and this is true with you know all of the trace evidence that that we just talked about, right? And we talk about fingerprints, talk about ballistics or firearms and tool marks or bite marks or tire treads or um, all these kind of trace evidence or pattern matching techniques. Is that they rest on two assumptions. Right, is that one is that you can make a match, right? You can declare these two things, you know, identical, right? And then the second thing is like, so these two hairs, let's say, right? These two hairs are identical, they match. You know, this one I found at the crime scene, this one I plucked from the suspect's head, I see no differences between these under the microscope. You say, okay, let's, let's say for a second that you can do that, right? Then the second question is, is really, so what? How many other people might also match? right? You know, is it one in five or one in five million, right? So we don't have that information. And what the NAS pointed out is even making a match, there's no agreement on what microscopic characteristics must match and how many of them must match to even declare a match, right? It's just somebody eyeballing the evidence and saying, I see these two things as identical. And then to be able to have any information as to the so what part, right? How probative is that match? You have to know how rare or how common that, you know, those variables that you're matching together actually are. And we don't have that information either. 
right? So you can't say that, you know, this only this hair or one in five hairs would match, you know, this hair. And you can't say, even if you could do that, you can't say that there wouldn't be millions of other people that would also match a hair. Nevertheless, courts have accepted and FBI special agents had proffered and they trained states experts to give testimony matching hairs and declaring that it was the suspect's hair or was almost you know, impossible that it would be somebody else's hair or was very, very likely to be that person's hair for a century. And I write like my first week here at the Innocence Project, you know, is, is the biggest scandal in forensic sciences in our nation's history it was unfolding at the time. And it was the FBI was admitting after over 70 wrongful convictions attributable, at least in part to these hair comparison evidence, that the evidence had been grossly overstated for 100 years and that they joined the Innocence Project and the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers to conduct an audit of thousands of cases to see how many other miscarriages of justice that were there. And that was the critique that the FBI adopted was the same critique that the NAS report, you know, had offered years before. And it was just like, there was another three wrongful convictions in DC, back to back to back that were reported relentlessly by the Washington Post, a reporter named Spencer Sue. And the, those particular cases also were all black men. They were all convicted of um, assaulting white women. They were all um, based on microscopic hair comparison was very important to it. There were three different experts. So that was important. So you couldn't make the bad apple um, argument. They were all from the vaunted FBI crime lab. And what was worse about hair microscopy is like that we, uh, we know that structural racism plays, you know, the, the central role in mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And this type of evidence could also be used to racialize the testimony, particularly when it's a black man accused of assaulting a white woman. And the, the so-called expert testimony is saying that they found a so-called Negroid hair on this white victim's hair or on this white victim's body has the effect under the guise of scientific evidence of putting a racial like charged tinge into the prosecution. So it's all the more prejudicial than in ways that, you know, beyond, you know, traditional, you know, unfair prejudice. So all those factors kind of finally got the FBI to the table and to do this, you know, what I call the junk science recall in the book. But, you know, the principles about, you know, what information you need to make a match and what information you need to state how, you know, the so what question, you know, the how probative is the match, you know, that's true for fingerprints, that's true for firearms, that's true for all of these finger, all these forensic techniques. But I should say something about fingerprints, because like you, you know, I, I believe, you know, probably like you that, that fingerprints are likely to be unique. What which is not really, it's not a scientifically validated fact, but it's also not really the issue in forensics because what you have with fingerprints is often smudges at crime scenes, not very much information. And we don't know how much information you need to say that that's enough information that you could say that it only come from that one person. And what we also don't know is how similar fingerprints might appear. And so- Especially when you're talking to partial prints, correct? Right, exactly. That's what I meant by latent prints. But yes, oh, my partial. Yes. No, no, but that's your your right to clarify. So it's a partial print at a at a crime scene, and so that is a different problem than some of the other issues that I've been talking about. But it is a problem. So you know, fingerprints, while generally very reliable, 
the reliability really depends on the quality of the evidence. And we don't have standards for how much information, how, quali how, 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 how high quality that we need before we can make a reliable conclusion. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the fingerprints I was going to ask you about. That's one of those things in this book that maybe blew me away as much as anything, because like you said, we've been led to believe our entire lives because all fingerprints, when you're looking at its entirety, are like snowflakes that everyone is different. That's taking the entirety of the fingerprint. And oftentimes what you're looking at is something significantly less than the entirety of the print itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, and and that's what, you know, it's that conflation of like when people think of you know we're used to open our iphones using our fingerprints right and we get our kids fingerprinted so we can identify them right so that's the same kind of mythology that we talk about that i was trying to debunk with the book right is that this uniqueness of everything right snowflakes aren't unique by the way right the uh is like so <laughs> let's start there right? so thank you there the uh is like that that we just assume uniqueness of everything people assume the uniqueness of the human dentition of fingerprints of hair of all these other things that that you actually have to do scientific research to show that and also it's like how how much magnification do you need how much of a granular look do you need of like your teeth to declare them unique right so you know if you examine anything closely enough probably it's going to have it either unique or very highly distinct but that's not the level of examination that typically goes into a, a forensic matching you know uh, assay yeah back to the nas debunking forensic sciences certain forensic sciences in 20 uh, 2006 for a sec why did the discovery process for arson junk science have to be done differently and what was ultimately learned there well arson um you know, it was very few um, forensic techniques have can point to one experiment and one case as a turning point really for the entire field and as quite as dramatically as arson evidence. And this is a story that I wrote about the Gerald Lewis case in the, in the book. And, you know, the NAS, you know, when they, you know, took John Lentini's testimony and did that research, that experiment had been done. It should have, it shouldn't have even needed the NAS by that time to do it because of the experiment that was known as the Lime Street experiment. And what happened there was that Gerald Lewis was going through a divorce with his wife, a contentious divorce, and there had been allegations of physical abuse in the past, and she had thrown him out of the house the night before the house that he'd been thrown out of burned to the ground and six people died. So there was a lot of, and he was there at the at the time and was there when the fire uh, department finally showed up for this, you know, enormous inferno that killed his um, entire family, except for um, his one surviving son. And so he was indicted for capital murder. And, you know, the, there was a, an outcry for vengeance in the local community there. And there was um, the same arson indicators that we talked about as related to Cameron Todd Willingham and to a couple of the other arson cases that I talk about in the book were observed in the aftermath of this terrible tragedy. And that led to the indictment. 
And what happened with Gerald Lewis's case is that one is that he got very experienced defense attorneys who had previously litigated an arson case and sent investigators immediately to the scene to conduct their own investigation. And then they offered a lot of evidence of innocence that, um, that these investigators uncovered that confirmed some of the aspects of Gerald Lewis's story that he had tried to help put out the fire and what was going on inside the house when he ran in to try to rescue one of the kids. And there, so there was, you know, a weakening of the prosecution theory, but what they had left was these, the folklore of arson. And what you see, which was really an incredibly brave and um, um, unusual move by the prosecutor in this case, is that he allowed John Lantini and, and another fire investigator to conduct an experiment to test the defense's theory in the case that this had been accidental. And just fortunately, you know, and this was, you know, a kind of a marginalized um, neighborhood, you know, I mean, and there happened to be an abandoned house next door to the house that had burned down that was identical construction. And they reconstructed, you know, everything about the original interior of the house that had burned down. They found the original, uh, another, a replica of the couch that was in there. They put up new drywall to match the drywall that had been used in that house. They uh, replicated the ventilation systems, everything down to as much as, and, and spent, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on this project. And then they lit a match and they saw what happened. And what happened was, is when they finally learned about full room involvement or flashover, and they observed all of the same uh, folklore that had led to Timer Cod William Hand's execution, and that was being used to prosecute Gerald Lewis. And, you know, there's a microphone at the scene that picked up one of the firefighters that they're putting it out saying that we think that we just proved the defense's theory in this case, right? Because it was that evident. You saw the poor patterns, you saw the multiple points of entry, you saw all these things that had been, you know, believed to be arson indicators and they just weren't. So that one experiment, and then they dismissed the indictment against um, Gerald Lewis and, and, you know, he was freed to go. That should have changed everything. But, you know, I write about some of the entrenched, you know, beliefs in forensics in the book, you know, I mean, and, and then there were, you know, dozens of wrongful convictions that went on for decades after the science, including Cameron Todd Williams, after the science had already been debunked, because it's so hard to change minds of uh, people who have been, you know, taught a, a forensic uh, technique by respected mentors that's accepted in court as expert witness testimony, as scientific evidence, that there are textbooks written about it, that there are whole organizations devoted to it, that to come to understand that your life's work may have led to you know, many miscarriages of justice and that it was just wrong. It's a very, very hard thing for any, we're all human, very hard to accept, you know I mean? And, and in many cases wasn't accepted and led to, you know, additional wrongful uh, convictions. Yeah, we as humans have a hard time admitting that we're wrong as well. And uh, although I'm not going to ask about this, I highly recommend folks pick this book up for numerous reasons, but especially to learn about Nancy Grace's ascent from high profile prosecutor to television personality built on the lies of supposed arson indicators as well. So the NAS, uh, the NAS ends up presenting their findings at the 61st annual American Academy of Forensic Sciences meeting in Denver, Colorado in February. 
February of 2009. How did that go, Chris? That was an earthquake. You know, a um, you know, it's exactly what we've just been talking about. You know, I mean, it's just like that rolled across. You know, that's the the annual gathering, the largest in the world of forensic scientists from all over the world. Thousands and thousands of people attended every year, and for years, for decades, there had been no discussion of wrongful conviction. There had been no real concerns around reliability issues. There had been no like you know, pointing to these exonerations that the Innocence Project were having on some of the things like hair microscopy and bite marks, because there had been no outside scrutiny by mainstream science of forensic techniques that had been being used in courts for, you know, 100 years. So there was really suddenly this spotlight you know, this very uncomfortable spotlight shined on all of the forensic experts that were gathered and around the country with law enforcement that had been using these, you know, to bust bad guys for a long, long time, suddenly was thrown into doubt by, you know, the, the most important scientific en entity in the United States. It was just, you know, it's still talked about today. Every single brief that I write at the Innocence Project discusses the NAS report. Every single forensic conference that I go to, the NAS report is always on a topic. It's just, it shows, you know, I mean, it was, um, you know, how much sunshine was needed, you know, in the forensic community to really examine by disinterested scientists, the scientific validity of these techniques and that just not, had not happened in any kind of systemic way before. You know, I compared it in the book to what was known as a Corcoran report in medicine, right? Is that for a centuries, their medicine had been very similar to the way forensics was and that it was really based on, on what I, you know, quoted um, known as eminence-based, eminence-based you know, rather than evidence-based, right? And so, most prominent practitioners in medicine, this was true in forensics, basically would do case reports, say, you know, I treated my, my patient this way, you know, I used leeches, I bled them out, the headache went away, therefore, bleed your patients out with headaches, right? So that was like kind of that, you know, a lot of in medicine, a lot of it happened to be accurate, a lot of it wasn't accurate, but they didn't turn to evidence-based medical decision-making and really until the 80s and after this, uh, the Corcoran report was very similar to the NAS report in, the, in that it wasn't medical doctors that were examining all the medical literature. It was statisticians, it was other scientists to like, take a look at like what were the bases for these diagnoses that the doctors were making. And then a lot of them was very faulty. You know I mean? It wasn't evidence-based, right? And you know, more and more that that is less and less true today. So it's very similar in forensics in the sense that there had never been this outside scrutiny and it was a lot of mainstream scientists that had offered it and that it was statisticians were part of that group and the resistance was also very similar and that medical doctors were rejected initially. The Corcoran report is people who didn't know what the hell they were talking about. So what is this statistician doing talking to me about how I'm treating my patients? Get out of here, right? What do you know, right? <laughs> and that's the same in forensics, right? You know, is you could have Albert Einstein descend from, you know, the clouds and, and come into criminal court and tell the judge, listen, judge, the spite mark stuff, it's junk, right? And the judge isn't going to listen to Albert Einstein, right? It's going to listen to the forensic odontologist, the board certified guy who's been doing this entire career. That's just the reality. And so when you have like this outside scrutiny, 
it's incredibly significant and jarring. Speaking of, why is Michael West an especially belligerent example of forensic odontology? Michael West is a symptom of uh, uh, the disease of junk science, you know, and probably the worst, um, you know, offender in many ways, you know, I mean, in, in that, you know, when we started uh, the strategic litigation department in uh, 2012, you know, bite marks had already, you know, been shown to be grossly unreliable. The NAS report had happened. There had already been wrongful convictions. And, you know, my department was tasked with, you know, amongst other types of litigation with eliminating the use of bite mark evidence, you know, I mean, and that we knew that it was a, um, that it led to wrongful convictions. We knew that there was no literature supporting it. And there had been some new research that tended to disprove some of the claim techniques. And so I had a notion, you know, that because I was aware of Dr. West because he was such like a, a folk hero almost, right? And he was on the Phil Donahue show. He's on Vanity Fair. He was this guy from the dentist. He called himself a little old dentist from Hattiesburg, right? And so he was from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And the, um, um, they, uh, and he became kind of a, a, a folksy phenomenon and that jurors just lapped it up, right? Because he was very charming and witty and he would, you know, a lot of all shucks and, but it also a lot of scientific jargon enough to, you know, this toxic mix of, you know, plus, you know, the credentials that the American Board of Forensic Odontology offered him. And jurors across the Southeast just loved it and wrongfully convicted a lot of people. And so I was added to a legal team that was litigating Eddie Lee Howard's case in Mississippi because I was becoming an expert in bite marks and ended up, you know, and I felt like, you know, from the beginning of this work that, you know, a confrontation with Michael West is almost inevitable. Hmm. And it was like that, you know, like Luke has to confront Vader at some point, right? And that was like that moment for me. And I write about this deposition that I took with him where he was just totally out of his mind. He called me an asswipe under oath, you know what I mean? And, you know, it was just really, um, you know, it would be funny if it wasn't a death sentence, that issue. And my client is in parchment prison on death row. But it was really just an astonishing um, event in my life, in my career. And all the more so is that we lost, you know, I mean, this madman, you know, is like, you know, testifying under, you know, these like this the bizarre theories, you know, I mean, and, and so, you know, it's really, um, you know, it was one of the most significant, you know, um, cases that I've ever been a part of, you know, I mean, and, and really just a, a, a terrifying experience in many ways guy strikes me as playing just a complete fucking character i mean he even got the costume to go along with it too yeah no i mean he's definitely fully in in role you know i mean and and um seems like gleeful about you know the the role that he's played in miscarriages of justice you know throughout and he's totally unrepentant and um stands by all of his opinions right you know i mean there's he won't you know admit to being wrong except for the one time where he's actually caught in the act of matching a bite mark to a bite mark or matching teeth to a bite mark that 
um, the teeth could not have created, right? There was an experiment done by Chris Blurd, who's now a judge in California, where he sent Michael West some teeth and photos of a, of a bite mark. We knew it was actually to be a bite mark, but the dental mold was from his investigator. He lived in Utah, right? And so he paid him his $750 fee and West matched that bite mark to and said that the odds were astronomical that anybody else other than Chris Bullard's investigator could have made that mark, right? We played that video of that false positive, right? This wrongful match in court in front of the judge, Judge Lee Howard from Columbus, Mississippi, and still lost. You have evidence playing out in court of quackery. We still lost. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard not to be cynical. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that goes a long ways in explaining the entire state of Mississippi there. All right, Chris, just a couple more questions. First off, what are unindicted co-ejaculator theories? <laughs> so this is an expression that became popular in, in the innocence movement because um, it's an effort to explain away ex exculpatory DNA evidence, right? So Michael West, for example, had his own unindicted co-ejaculator theory for a wrongful conviction of LeVon Brooks and, and Kennedy Brewer. The, and in both cases, he claimed to have matched bite marks of those two men on these two-year-old victims who had been raped and murdered in, um, and been kidnapped from their house and raped and murdered and bodies disposed of in a swamp in Mississippi. And he claimed that bite mark evidence matched both of those um, and to the bodies who's losing everybody else on the planet and then that there were dozens of bite marks and it turned out that there was one man that was responsible for both very very similar crimes he confessed to them and confessed to everything except for he denied biting them actually and it turns out they weren't even bite marks so when I questioned him about those cases during the deposition that we just talked about I, um, he offered the theory and they stood by it that he didn't say that either of these men had committed the murders or the rapes. He'd only said that he'd, they'd bitten him. So his theory was, is that both men had held down in separate incidents, entirely unrelated, that they had sold these two-year-old girls to the actual perpetrator in exchange for money or drugs, wasn't sure which, and that he had held them down and bit the victims while the perpetrator raped and murdered them. And so that's a kind of a classic unindicted co-ejaculator theory, right? And, the, um, and you get, you know, less extreme, you know, uh, examples all the time where it seems like, you know, very obvious that, you know, there was one perpetrator, you know, a, a rape, for example, you know, where somebody knows how many people were there. And suddenly you'll just be claiming that there were two perpetrators for the first time ever, you know, I mean, uh, in an effort to explain it away. So it became such a like, common phrase that my colleague, um, Jackie McMurtry, who ran the Washington Instance Project for 20 years, you know, wrote a law review article called Unindicted Co-Ejaculators. It was, you know, common enough for the title of a law review article. Oh, so ridiculous. All right, last question now, Chris, who is Stephen Mark Cheney and why is his story so important to you? Well, Mr. Cheney was um, my first Innocence Project client. Um, he was wrongfully convicted by the Dallas District Attorney's Office in the 80s on a bite mark case. And he um, 
and I got close um, over the years. And um, when I decided to write the book, he was the person that I was interviewing the most about it. I said, I wasn't doing that when I was actually representing him. And this, his struggle, um, which uh, kind of, I draw the arc of like the history of the Dallas District Attorney's Office through the struggle of his wrongful conviction and some of the progress that's been unique in Texas, um, kind of paradoxically, given you know the, the commitment to the death penalty that has also happened in Texas with the Forensic Science Commission and other progress. So Stephen Cheney was a beautiful human being. Um, I had great admiration and respect for him, and his story is really the backbone of the book. And so that's why you know he's one of the people that I dedicated it to. And, um, you know, he was really a victim of junk science in many ways, in, in all ways, really. Yes, he was. Rest in peace. M. Chris Fabricant is the Innocence Project's Director of Strategic Litigation and one of the foremost experts on forensic sciences and the U.S. criminal justice system. That is the basis of his excellent new book, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Chris, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you so much for this important book. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thank you to Joshua Bates for the video editing. If you have any video editing needs, hit him up on Instagram at Forager Digital. And thanks as always to you for checking us out. You can watch, listen, learn, and connect for free at BooksOnPod.com. For Books on Pod, I'm Trey Elling. Good day.